Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer today. Lord, we thank you for your gracious kindness to us. And we thank you for your long-suffering with us. We would acknowledge that we do not always contemplate the, the, the depth of your holiness and the rightness of your wrath against our sinfulness. You created us. We are yours. We are subject to you and to your authority. And we recognize that even the smallest transgression is an assault on your holiness. And so help us to understand this reality while simultaneously understanding the depth of the mercy and grace that's available in Christ. We cannot fathom this. You did not extend the same mercy to the angels when they sinned, and yet you have extended it to us. And for that, we are grateful. We are eternally uh, grateful because we will be worshiping you for all of eternity. So help us now to look on your word with hearts that are ready to um, soak up what you have put here for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we will be concluding chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And you may recall that we have been looking at a recurring theme in this chapter. And the phrase uh, that we have uh, uh, said is the theme to this chapter is a phrase that I have confessed to you that I have stolen. It is not one that is unique to me. Um, But the theme of chapter 14 has been this. Edification requires intelligibility. That has been something that has come up again and again and again and again. If we are going to be edified as believers in Christ, if we are going to be blessed or encouraged as believers in Christ, then we need to understand what Scripture tells us. What this means, quite simply, is that you cannot be edified without understanding. If you were, for instance, sad and came up to me or someone seeking encouragement in your sadness, and I spoke to you or that person spoke to you in a language that you did not understand, you could not be encouraged by that because you would have no idea what they were communicating to you. It seems like a pretty logical and elementary truth, but it needs to be stated nonetheless. The church in Corinth was using their gift of tongues in the church service, which was a problem, because they were speaking in a language that nobody could understand. And they thought that this demonstrated their spirituality. Look at what I can do. I can speak in this other language. And, oh, wait, wait, I can too. Listen to me. And then they were speaking over one another, and there was a lot of chaos going on in this church, but there was no encouragement going on. There was no edification going on. Paul responds to this very clearly Uh, When he says rather pointedly in verse 19, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And you might respond to this and say, wow, this principle is so basic. Who in the world would be violating this today? Who in the world would speak all of these kinds of words that people could not understand? And you may recall several ways in which this has happened throughout history. We actually talked about this uh, a number of uh, times, particularly in our first message in 1 Corinthians 14. And I'll just remind us of some of these ways in which throughout history we have committed the same error. The Corinthian church, of course, did it by speaking in tongues. The Roman Catholic church did it by outlawing Bibles. Again, the Roman Catholic Church does it today by holding church services in Latin, a language that people, most people cannot understand. The Amish Church also does it today, uh, not all, but some, by holding church services in German, uh, high German. Uh, the seeker-sensitive church does it today by creating an experience and neglecting to preach truth. We'll just create an emotional experience. We won't preach truth or we'll preach stories 
and then this will pass for a church service. Again, the seeker-sensitive church service does it today. One of the examples I used early on was in preaching on Hollywood movies. We're going to preach on this instead of the text of Scripture. The charismatic church does it today by pretending to speak in tongues. And we do it today willingly when we neglect our Bibles and say, I don't know about that theology stuff. All I need is love. I'm not going to worry about getting too in-depth into Scripture. Clearly, then, we recognize the importance and our need to speak in a way that others can understand us. We need to make sure, and it is of utmost importance, that the message of the gospel, the message of Christ redeeming fallen sinners, is a message that is clear, because people need to repent and believe in that message. Nobody, uh, at least I don't think anybody today, would pay money to hear college lectures in a language that they could not understand. Why then do people go to church to hear messages they cannot understand? But there's an important point that we saw last week, and that point is that um, speaking with intelligence, speaking with knowledge, or speaking with understanding is not because we love knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Of course, we have been emphasizing this time and time again, that we don't want to just uh, increase our knowledge for the sake of that. We certainly don't want to increase our knowledge for the sake of arrogance so that we can go around and say, look at how much I know compared to how much you know. Uh, we, we saw that we are trying to emphasize understanding in the church to get at something else, something that is even more important than knowledge. And we saw last week that speaking with knowledge and with understanding accomplishes two things. In verse 17 of chapter 14, we saw that it accomplishes building up others. We said this is a way to follow what Jesus said when Jesus says uh, the greatest two commandments, to love God and love others. To love others is to build up others, and we do this through an understandable message. Uh, That was number one. Number two was found in verse 25, and that is this. When you speak in an understandable way, unbelievers will be converted and worshipped. Getting at, on the one hand, edification of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and on the other hand, we were getting at worship of God. And this is what this understanding this message produces. Now, of course, all of the normal qualifications apply in this situation. Okay? We're not saying that it doesn't matter what message you preach as long as it's understandable. Okay, we, we, we know this. Understandable speech must be true. Okay, Understandable speech must be biblical, and so on and so forth. But at the core, this true biblical message needs to be communicated in a way that is understandable. Speech must be understandable. Now today, the emphasis in this passage is in a slightly different location. Instead of emphasizing what understandable speech produces namely edification and worship, we are looking at the correct motivation for understandable speech, namely the character of God himself. Let's read this passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation... Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged." And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in, church, in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I want to look at this section of text in three different um, pieces here. Uh, And that is instructions on orderly worship, 26 through the first part of 33. Instructions on women in the church, 33b through 35. And then a concluding summary that he gives here. As we begin this first section on orderly church worship, uh, we notice that the emphasis is on the worship service and that it should be orderly. And right from the start, we see that the goal of this, uh, this has been the driving goal in 1 Corinthians 14, the goal, the driving goal is the building up of others. This is why he's giving all this various instruction. He says in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? Building up. The way that you are going to go about holding a church service ought to be done for the purpose or the goal of building up others. This verse reminds us, of course, that the church is not a spectator sport. It involves a joint cooperation of the members of the church. And while we have already discussed several times uh, the fact that the gift of tongues has ceased, the point still remains that the church must provide opportunities for church members to exercise their giftedness. And of course, the corollary is true as well. Church members must take advantage of the opportunities that are given for uh, must not sideline themselves. Now, there is an application that we're going to draw out here. We'll draw it at the end. But draw it now, uh, immediately in this. And that is, if you have not been using your giftedness, your spiritual giftedness to bless and edify the church, please come and see me. Or see whoever may be in charge of that particular area that the Lord has gifted you in. And if you have already come uh, and seen me and nothing happened, please come see me again because I forget too sometimes, okay? (laughs) Do not wait for me to remember or harbor bitterness, okay? Because sometimes I forget. If I do not write things down, I definitely do forget them, okay? So please see me if that is you. The point of this verse is that there, there, there is to be a variety of church people serving in various and different roles and ministries in the church. This is what a healthy church looks like. And the purpose of all of this busyness is to build others up. Now, one comment here on this verse on tongues and interpretations. Uh, since the gift of tongues has ceased, as we have seen, I would suggest to us that the gift of the interpretation of tongues has likewise ceased. But I did come across commentary that gave a rather creative way to uh, kind of flesh this out in a particular context. And that is, uh, if you see someone who is uh, speaking in tongues or, or, or claiming these particular gifts, one way to flesh out what is going on here is to offer, this is if you know a legitimate foreign language, okay, to offer to speak in tongues and ask for an interpretation and speak in the foreign tongue and see if it is a legitimate interpretation. I do not endorse this method at all, (laughs) but this is one creative way that a commentary I came across said, if you want to really know what's going on, this is one way to flush that particular thing out. I would suggest to us that we would discover that since the gift of tongues has ceased, that the gift of interpretations has also, and that uh, the gift of tongues, quote-unquote, today, is not a legitimate language, as was in New Testament times, but is nothing but babble. Paul then gives instructions on how the various gifts in the church ought to contribute to orderliness. He says this in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is none to interpret, let him keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so you may all learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets, spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, there's a couple things to note in this particular section. And uh, the first thing is this. 
a church service ought not be chaotic. That's pretty straightforward from this passage. Paul limits, even in this day when tongues was uh, in operation, he limits tongues to two or three people in turn, not speaking over one another. We can imagine what was going on then. If he had to say, listen, just two or three of you and don't speak over one another, that there was more than two or three and they were speaking over one another. Chaotic situation. He also says that an interpreter is a requirement. No interpreter, then no speaking in tongues. So if you were going to speak in tongues in a church service and no one was around that had the gift of interpretation, then you were to keep your gift to yourself because of his principle that edification requires intelligibility. You have to understand the message if you're going to be encouraged by the text. John MacArthur says this, He says, for the sake of hypothetical discussion, it is noteworthy that even if one granted that the gift was still in use today, that is the gift of tongues, the modern movement would be totally discredited as illegitimate by its failure to follow the clear controlling commands in these verses. MacArthur is saying that even if this uh, gift was still in operation today, uh, it would be subject to what this passage is instructing on how that ought to be played out, and obviously... On the, for the most part, this is not the case in most churches that use this quote-unquote gift. The next observation here in this set of verses is that structure in a church service is good. Now, of course, there is no inspired liturgy in the New Testament in the sense of first have your call to worship, then have one song, then have scripture reading, then have two songs, and then have the message. If you go to various different churches, you will see that the liturgies are different in each church. The New Testament does give us the components of a church service, but it does not necessarily say you need to sing four songs as opposed to five or whatever it might be. Nevertheless, what this verse is going at is that structure is important. And every church does, in some sense, have a liturgy. And we ought to strive to make it as biblical as possible. Now, in addition to two or three people speaking in tongues, he says two or three people should prophesy. Um, in other words, they should not, prophets should also not be talking over one another. Prophets should be speaking in turn and not all at the same time. And you may recall that we previously said that the gift of prophecy was the gift of declaring God's word. And so uh, while there was a component with the Old Testament prophets where there was a uh, foretelling of the future, what we would say the gift of prophecy entails today is simply declaring God's word. So preaching is this gift of prophecy. Teaching would also fit under this umbrella of the gift of prophecy. And so he says two or three per service. We actually do usually have two or three per service. We have a call to worship where prophecy is given. Oftentimes, whoever is leading the song service for that day will give to us some biblical instruction about the direction of the songs and the the, the biblical roots of what we're doing there. That is prophecy, instruction. And then, of course, we have uh, the sermon or the message for the day. And so, uh, like Paul suggested, uh, two or three, or like Paul told us, two or three, Uh, we have incorporated two or three in each usual service. What is interesting to note here, though, is what he says in the second half of this verse. He says two or three prophets should speak, and he says, let the others weigh what is said. This is an interesting component of the verse here, because what is going to happen typically, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't say typically, but oftentimes what happens is that there is an assumption that someone who is speaking, uh, if we want to use this term prophetically or scripturally or biblically or preaching, that that person is automatically, because of their position, correct. And this is not the case. He says, let the others in the church weigh what is said. Now, if you are going to weigh what is said, you are going to have to weigh that against a standard against a rule, against an authority. If I'm going to say, is what's being preached from the pulpit true, then what is the standard that I'm going to go to to find out whether that is true? Let me give you a hint. The standard is not yourself. The standard is not, man, that really made me feel uncomfortable today. I didn't like that. 
Many people do use that as a standard, though it ought not be. The standard, of course, is Scripture. What that means is that while I am preaching at Crossview, or any other person is preaching at Crossview, you are never to engage in passive listening. In other words, you're not, okay, 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 yep, must be true, that must be true, okay. You are to listen to preaching, my preaching, with an open Bible. You are to listen to this preaching and say, is this what the pastor is saying? Is this what the text is saying? And by the way, again, your judge is not yourself. I don't think this says this. Uh, yeah, I think, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that, but yeah, that is what it's saying. The, the authority is ultimately the word and not self. What this means is that it is possible for any speaker, any preacher, to engage in false teaching. That may be intentional, or it could be unintentional if a, a preacher does not understand a particular text. It also means that someone with the gift of prophecy is not automatically inerrant. The only inerrant source of authority for us is Scripture. This also means that while we can find people in church history with insight into Scripture, there are no individuals in church history that are ultimately and finally authoritative. Okay? I frequently bring quotations from other writers and pastors and theologians into uh, my preaching, and oftentimes you'll see different characters from church history, uh, sometimes dead individuals, sometimes living individuals, and I hope that you understand that when I bring up those people and quote something that they said, that does not mean that I am saying that person is inerrant, okay? That, that we could go through every person that I've ever quoted in any sermon that I've ever preached and say, yeah, I think they, were, they missed the mark there, sometimes maybe by a lot in particular situations. Uh, the ultimate and final judge is Scripture itself. Uh, again, that is not you, yourself. Just because you don't like what is preached does not mean that it is wrong. Next, he gives some more instructions on making sure that there is structure in the church service, he says in verses 30 through 32, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so you all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. The point here is simply that everything should be done in order. You're not talking over one another. You're not saying, here's my message, here's my message, and everyone is, what's going on here? And as he said last time, an unbeliever walks in and says, you guys are out of your minds. <laughs> it's supposed to be done orderly. It's supposed to be done with purpose, with intent. And he also says that prophetic words are subject to previously revealed prophetic words. You see that? The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Same thing that we just said, and that is that there is a standard by which we subject Modern prophets, use that term in the sense that, that it's used in the New Testament here. Modern prophets, or those who are, are speaking scripture, expositing scripture, are subject to previous revelation. Finally, he gives us the reason for all of these instructions in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, I want to park here for just a moment because I think is the controlling verse to this passage. I want to bring a couple of other verses that say the same thing. Romans 15, 33, may the God of peace be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. And then Hebrews 13, 20, now may the God of peace. Okay, we see that part of the character of God, the attributes of God, is that God is a God of peace. He's not a God of disorderliness. He's not a God of chaos. And by the way, this is a side note. Because God is a God of order, and God is a God of structure, and God is a God not of chaos, he imposes that on his creation. Did you know that if you... That, that, that God is the author of scientific laws. God authored the law of gravity. Do you know that? Did you know that the reason that if you 
take a five-pound ball and hold it at such a height, and the wind condition is consistent, and you drop it, and the, the rate of speed at which it falls is consistent, whether you do that today, tomorrow, the next day, or 100 years from now, it's always... Did you know why that's the case? Because God built structure into creation. He imposes his own orderliness on it. That's why science is repeatable, because God built structure. Did you know that logic is also a reflection of the way that God thinks? God does not break the law of non-contradiction. You know what the law of non-contradiction is? You cannot say that something is true and untrue in the same exact way. I cannot say that uh, this paper is on the pulpit and this paper is not on the pulpit. Why? Because logic is consistent. Because God is consistent. God imposes orderliness on creation. Creation is not chaotic because God is not chaotic. And we see that clearly in scripture here. God is a God of peace. Now, the question that is pertinent for the text in front of us is why is this foundational and why is this worthy of mentioning? And that is because of a universal principle that I'll say it in three different ways. And that universal principle is orthopraxy is always grounded in orthodoxy. And in case you're wondering what that means, it means this. Right living is grounded in right doctrine. Or we might say belief determines behavior. What we mean by this is when we are looking to know how we ought to behave in the world, what is the right ethic, how should I behave morally, how should I conduct myself in the world, where do I go for that at a foundational level? It's the character of God. You see, that's what he's doing here. He's kind of, he, he could have just said, guys, make your church service orderly, please. But he, he said, make your church service orderly, and oh, by the way, I'm going to pull the curtain back, and I want you to see the reason why your church service should be orderly, and that is because, foundationally speaking, this is part of the character and nature of God himself. And that is the, the, the root, and it springs up into the fruit of how I behave. I ought to have orderliness in the church. We can expand this and say we ought to have orderliness in our homes. We ought to have orderliness in our community and so on and so forth. It is all because God is a God of peace and not a God of chaos. God's character then, as we see here, is foundational for behavior. If you want to know how to structure a worship service, God's character, his attributes must come into play. It is the foundation. Do you want to know how to live your life ethically? God's character is the foundation for that. We know in Hebrews that the author says uh, it is impossible for God to lie. God does not lie. So therefore we should not lie, so on and so forth. A good example of this principle being fleshed out in Scripture is 1 John 4.19. We looked at this a couple of times when we looked at 1 Corinthians 13. But in 1 John 4.19, it says we love because he first loves us. And that's kind of an example of this, that our love is grounded in his love. Ortho, uh, orthodoxy uh, produces the orthopraxy, is what we ought to understand this to be. One commentator said that this verse, that is 1 Corinthians 14.33, is the key to the whole chapter. And I think that it is. Everything must be done with an eye towards the character of God, including what we will see as a series of rather controversial verses. 1 Corinthians, 13, uh, four, 1 Corinthians 14, 33b to 35. This is included in a section... That Paul is saying, this is how you are to conduct an orderly church service. You are to, you know, have two or three speak. They're supposed to speak in turn. You don't need to talk over one another. You need to do this for edification. And by the way, women, be silent. <laughs> okay, what are we going to do with this? I will say... That as I uh, prepared this message for today, I have read many, many views on what this means. Uh, what does Paul mean when he says women should keep silent in the churches? 
Some commentators say that Paul never wrote this and it was added later. This, of course, is not satisfactory because every single manuscript down to the last one that we have on this passage includes this verse. There is no manuscript that does not include it. This is not a textual variant uh, in any case. Some say that Paul was quoting a Corinthian false statement and then correcting it. You guys are saying that women should be silent, but I say to you... Uh, But that is, as far as I can tell, only a recent view. And there's nothing in the text that would indicate that. Paul does not go on a diatribe after this to say, to correct that. Some, of course, more liberal commentators would say, well, that's just Paul. (laughs) And Paul had some issues. And, of course, we would agree with Augustine who said what Paul says, God says, at least what Paul says in inspired scripture, God says. And so we can't take the view that that was just Paul. Otherwise, we actually unravel the whole Bible. If I get to say, well, that was just Paul, well, that was just Solomon, well, that was just so-and-so, at what point, when you do that, you are the authority. It's either the Bible or you. And so when you say, no, 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 okay, we'll keep that, then you are the ultimate authority on Scripture. Other commentators suggest that Paul was only speaking to the boisterous women and the out-of-line women in the church. Uh, But that doesn't make sense either because that distinction would have been made in here. He just says, the women. He doesn't say, the ones who are out of line. So let's read this together and try to process this. He says, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, one option is that we could just skip these verses and move on to the conclusion and pretend that they don't exist. Another option, this is probably more of a popular option, is to say... Oh, there's just so many views on this, we could never know for sure what he meant. And then, because it means everything, it means nothing. And this is an approach taken to a lot of passages in Scripture, by the way. That's your interpretation. Uh, There's just way too much to know, uh, and and we can't come to a conclusion. Here, let let me... um, Forgive me for lingering here, okay? But I know that this is a cultural hot button right now. And so I just want to flesh this out a little bit, okay? I want to give to you, I want, to, I want to pause for a moment on saying what this text specifically says. And I want to, to give you a tool to add to your Bible study toolbox, okay? You read scripture, I hope every day. You are studying scripture, trying to understand what scripture means. And I want to add one tool to your toolkit And I would suggest to you that this is going to be the hardest and most challenging aspect of studying your Bible. Now, there are some tools that are relatively easy to add to your Bible study. Someone might suggest to you, hey, when you study Scripture, look for all the commands. Where does God command us to do something? And write those down in the margins as a command. And then we know that these are the applications of this particular text. Or someone might say, when you do Bible study, look for all the promises of God. And jot those down. And when you're discouraged and when you're struggling through something, run to God's promises and and hang on those things. You might look for the attributes of God. Highlight in, in the book of Psalms every time that you see God's character given to us. And and all of these things are good, and I would suggest all of those things as good tools. Uh, There there might be harder tools that you begin to implement. You may uh, begin to study original languages, Hebrew and Greek, and say, I really want to dig down into what is going on here. I'm going to study this language and and try to understand it in in a greater... That's a hard tool to add to your toolbox. I would suggest to you that this one is the hardest, harder than studying Greek, and harder than studying Hebrew, and harder than all of the other tools put together. But you need to use it anyways, okay? And that is this. Every single time you open God's word, you need to make a commitment. 
If you discover when you read scripture that you believe something that disagrees with scripture, you will in that very moment change your mind and yield to the authority of scripture. I'm studying the word. I've, I've actually, here's one thing that you can do if, if you want to write it out, actually. And I've done this before. Write out on a notepad, when you come to a text, here's all my presuppositions as I come to this passage. And then read, study the text, go back to your list of presuppositions, which ones need to die. Now, whether you write that out or not, come to Scripture with that particular mindset. The Bible challenges all of our presuppositions, all of our preconceived ideas, down to the very core. I would suggest to us that there is not one person in this room that is perfectly and precisely, completely and totally accurate down to every last line of Scripture. There are things that when you read scripture, have to go. There are, ah, yeah, I can't believe that anymore. I have to believe this because this is what scripture tells me to believe. The Bible challenges our presuppositions. If you come to God's word and say, ah, not sure I believe that, ah, not sure about that, ah, there must be an explanation for that, then you are uh, confessing that scripture is not your authority, you are. Understand this is a foundational. Here's what you're going to find, here's what you're going to find out when you get to the hard texts. You're going to find out what you're ultimately committed to. Are you committed to self or are you committed to scripture? And whether you yield to scripture or not is going to reveal where your commitments lie. And whether you, don't, whether you broadcast that to the world or not, you are at least internally going to know where you stand in that particular issue. And the same is true in this text. Whatever is meant by these two verses, we have to yield to, even if it is hard. And it is hard because secular philosophies have affected us more than we realize. In particular, the rise of feminism and the androgynous values of the world make this a hard text to digest. I want to um, uh, read something fascinating. This this actually came up um, in my study um, earlier in 1 Corinthians but I'm kind of recycling it here, um, having to do with the submission of wives to their husbands. And there was one commentator that made a, 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 I'll explain what this means here in a second, but he made a a telling statement. He said, evangelical feminists usually uh, insist that Paul never intended for male-female relationships of authority and submission to be preserved cross-culturally. In other words, he says, evangelical feminists are saying that was only for Corinth, not for outside of Corinth. Tellingly, non-evangelical feminists regularly agree with more traditional evangelicals that Paul is promoting the subordination of wives here. But they usually deny that we can accept his instruction because they are not committed to the authority of all parts of scripture in the same way evangelicals are. Yet they admit that Paul would have wanted his patriarchy to be preserved cross-culturally. Okay, you understand understand what he's saying here? He's saying, okay, Bible-believing Christians, here's one place that you have more in common with secular, unbelieving feminists than you do with evangelical feminists. You, You understand what he's saying here? Because he's saying the secular, unbelieving person that comes to Scripture is like, yeah, that's misogynistic. Yeah, that's patriarchal. Yeah, yep, that's exact. Yep, Paul is, yep. It is the evangelical feminist who tries to keep some semblance of the Bible's authority, who's like, Paul could not have meant that. It was, no, this is, we're misunderstanding what he said. But what this commentator remarkably says is, uh, in this case, it's the unbelievers that have more in common (laughs) with the biblicists than the others do. Because, why? 
because they have nothing to lose by being honest. Saying the, the, the evangelical feminists have a lot to lose because if, if Paul really meant what he said, then there's a lot to lose here for you. But the unbeliever can look at this text. I don't have, nothing, I don't have anything to lose because it's not my authority. So yeah, I'm fine with being honest with the text. Yeah, that's what it means. And by the way, Paul was a pig. That's, that's kind of how this is, uh, this is what, the, what, what the commentator is saying here. Um, secular feminists come to the text and say, yeah, that is clearly patriarchal. Paul is assigning different roles to men and women, and there's no way out of that. Uh, in other words, the unbeliever has nothing to lose on being honest with the text which ironically should drive us to be more honest with the text. <laughs> what does the text say? What does it mean? How do we apply it? Not, can we figure out a way that this doesn't belong here? All right, so let's get back to the text itself. What does it mean? Well, it means what it says. No matter how much you try to soften this passage or make it say something different, one thing is inescapable. Let's, let's start here. Let's start at first base, okay? Whatever you take this to mean, at a minimum, it means that there is a difference between men and women, and there is a difference between the roles of men and women. If you want to soften this text, the only way to soften it out of that is to say that is not Scripture, that's just Paul, okay? If you are committed to the authority of Scripture, at a minimum, God has created men and women differently. Should we not be thankful for that? We are not identical, okay? Open your eyes, okay? We're different. At a minimum, this is what's going on here. Now, I cannot make you like this if you do not like this. I can only deliver the mail. And on this particular day, the mail I'm delivering is 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. I'm delivering the mail, and I cannot change anything about what you think about the mail, Okay? God says that men and women are different. That's it. We are not the same. We are different in our natures, and we are different in our roles. Okay? Um, Ask any parent. Um, My boy was all boy from the beginning, and my girls were all girl from the beginning. It's not something that I instructed to them. They gravitated towards those particular things. What these verses are telling us is that part of the distinction that exists in God's economy in the differences between men and women is that women are not supposed to have a teaching role over men. God has designated that men are pastors and teachers. This is what he has designated in his economy. Now, since... This passage is in the context of a church service. You say, women should be silent in church. Here's what I don't think it means. He's talking about a church worship service. He's not saying that at the moment a woman walks into the door of the church, she puts duct tape on her mouth, and she comes in, and then when she exits the door, the the duct tape can be removed, okay? This is not... What he's saying when he's saying that women should be silent in church, he's talking specifically in the context of the worship service, in context of preaching and teaching. Uh, In that context, women are not to exercise the authority over men in the church. Um, It is instructing women that in the worship service, they are to refrain from instruction or authority over men. Uh, This does not prohibit, by the way, women from singing in the church service because Ephesians chapter 5 says that we are to all as a church sing together, okay? So, I don't know if there's any church that prohibits that, okay? But 
This is not saying that women are not allowed to sing in the context of the church, okay? Um, it is also likely that there was some disruption going on uh, in the church service, as verse 35 makes clear. And John MacArthur says, apparently, certain women were out of order in disruptively asking questions publicly in the chaotic services. Now, you have to kind of paint, paint a picture here of what's going on in Corinth, the church in Corinth was not a model of the structure, a structured church, okay? Paul did not have to come and say, you guys are a little bit too stuffy. You need to just loosen up a little bit. This was every man and every woman for themselves in the church service. And he's addressing, in part, certain women, as, as MacArthur says, out of order, asking these questions. Now, some of you ladies come up to me after the church service and ask questions or clarification on what I preached. I think that's acceptable. I don't think he's prohibiting that. I think Paul is addressing the chaotic church service where everyone is shouting over one another, speaking out of turn, and Paul says, women, you need to stop this and just ask these questions. <laughs> okay. I do not think he was prohibiting the normal and respectful asking of questions after the worship service has concluded. Now, I wish that I had time today to preach on a theology of gender, okay? Because I know this is a very hot topic today. And actually, by the way, this is a little bit of a plug for our 9 a.m. service because I'm touching on a very related topic, a topic of Christian uh, identity, and we've been talking about our modern conception of this kind of stuff. And so there is a little bit of a relation to that, um, uh, that topic. I will say uh, just one more thing on this, though. God has created distinctions and differences in his creation. Okay? To say it in a somewhat more provocative way, um, God is a God who discriminates. Okay? If I wanted to be a little bit provocative here, okay? Does he not do this? He discriminates because animals are not people. Okay? Clouds are not rocks. Trees are not dirt. Okay? He draws boundary lines in his creation, and he says, this is not this, this is not this, this is not this, this is not this. This is not a bad thing. It reflects the creativity of God. With regard to men and women... We rejoice that God has given us different natures and different roles. The Lord has equipped men uniquely for certain tasks, and likewise, women are naturally suited for other tasks, okay? Any honest married couple is going to say amen to that. There are things that my wife is equipped to do in nurturing our children that I am not equipped to do, and there are things that I am equipped to do that my wife is not equipped to do. That distinction and that difference is to be celebrated, not disparaged or ridiculed. It is part of the goodness of God's created order. This is part of God's creative genius. Okay, let me try to wrap this up real quick because uh, a little bit over on time here. Finally, Paul gives uh, a concluding summary in verses 36 to 40. He says, was it from, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Paul acknowledges that the word of God has come to more than just this congregation. This is not just you guys. That the things he is writing about is, is normal in all the churches. This is what all the churches are doing and, and ought to do. The church in Corinth is skewing scripture in this particular way in the chaotic church services. And Paul is reminding them that he is giving them commands from the Lord. Those who fail to recognize this must be recognized um, uh, was not be recognized as having authority. Finally, he tells them not to forbid tongues. His point is not to make them stop, but to make it useful. Okay? 
And since it is not in operation today, uh, we don't have the ability to do this. But basically, the application is continue to make God's word understandable to people. Anyone who disagrees with this and believes that tongues is still in operation would need to use tongues as outlined in this chapter. If you say, oh, okay, tongues is still in operation. Okay, do it according to this chapter. I think, as I alluded earlier, that if you test someone by speaking a legitimate foreign language, you would discover quickly that what passes today for tongues is not the biblical um, sense of that. Finally, he concludes by saying everything should be done in order. Where do we go from here? Here's the driving point in this passage. If I could summarize all of this down to one, funnel it down to one point, it is this. Because God is a God of order, conduct orderly church service. That's simply what he's saying. God's orderliness is imposed on creation. The laws of nature listen to God. The laws of logic listen to God. That gravity obeys his command. Why can't you? You need to do the same thing because this is the character of God as he has imposed it on his creation. I have four points of application. Number one, use your spiritual gifts to edify the church in a way that is appropriate for your gender, okay? Meaning that God has created distinctions in the church, uh, particularly in, uh, with men and women, and we are to use our gifts that is appropriate in that way. Number two, edify the church in an orderly manner. Don't be chaotic. Don't disguise or encrypt God's word. Seek to make it understandable to people. Number three, Compare the preaching and teaching of the church to scripture. What is being preached and does it align with this? Not does it align with my emotions, but does it align with scripture? Is this what it says? And then finally, in your Bible study, yield your presuppositions to the authority of scripture. This is the thing to add to your Bible study toolbox. And maybe to help you think of this, one practical way of doing this is every time you open your Bible to do your devotions, write out somewhere, what presuppositions do I have to give up today? I'm not saying that you'll necessarily do that every single time that you read Scripture, um, but it ought to be a practice uh, because sometimes you'll read Scripture and maybe either not see presuppositions that are out of line or maybe in that particular text there may not be. Um, uh, and and uh, you continue going on, and you will find something eventually. Ultimately, the character of God and the word of God is our final authority. That's what this chapter has been instructing us on, and that final authority is over us in every facet of life. Thank you, God, for today. Your continued kindness to us. Help us to apply this text. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.